0: So hopefully by this time in the retreat, you're getting a little more sense, a little more understanding about this practice of equanimity and also hopefully this mental factor of equanimity and how powerful it can be, how it functions, and really perhaps a little bit the scope and the breadth of this quality of mind, how important it can be in our lives and in our practice and I've been talking to people in the meetings about how equanimity as a practice as a brahmavihara Vihara specifically is much more complex than metta I teach a lot of metta retreats it's you know very relatively common to do metta practice And there's even though there's challenges certainly in metta practice, it doesn't mean it's simple or easy. But there's a um, directness to it that I think we can, if we've done it for any extended time, get a sense of relatively easily what how to use the practice, what it's good for. But equanimity works on so many levels. It's it's nuanced and subtle, yet deep and profound. And so in this retreat, we're really just touching on some of these aspects of equanimity. But it's why I created um, this sheet with all the list of lists, Um, just to give you a sense of where equanimity shows up in these different lists, and its function, how, it's, how it serves us in our lives and our practice. So I'm going to be referring a little to this sheet. You don't need to have it. But um, I'm going to be talking, I, I just said to Tara before, I put a lot in this talk tonight. So just I talked about dharma osmosis. Let it wash over you. You don't need to remember anything. But really the, what I wanted to offer tonight was this both depth but complexity, the functioning of equanimity in our lives and our practice. And so we've talked a lot um, as we've given the instructions about each one of us finding our way. It's not like, oh, just do this, say this, and you'll have these experiences. Very unique, very individual, the way we're relating what works for us, the steadiness or the space, and why we've included These other supportive uh, practices, certainly the mindful awareness is so essential um, to help us stay grounded, connected, knowing what's happening. But the metta practice and the compassion practice also very important for each of us to learn how to weave together into a practice that helps in the context of this retreat, specifically develop equanimity. We don't just go charging towards equanimity and, and try to grasp it or strive after it. Hopefully we know by now that that doesn't work. We need to bring all of these skillful means to allow the mind, to, for, to allow wisdom to do the work. We can't really do this. And I spoke in my other talk the other night about this triad of practices that we um, specifically teach on this retreat and how they all interplay and are supportive, specifically the mindfulness meta and equanimity. And it, we probably know that triads or triangles are very robust, right? They're very stable, and they can, but they can move, right? They're not uh, s- um, stiff, so as I was thinking about that triad it, it, of uh, triangle, whatever, of practices, it reminded me of a phrase that's often used about equanimity. Kamala and I Kamala and I, spoke about this in the teacher room the other night, where it's called six-limbed equanimity. And six-limbed equanimity is when we have equanimity at each of the six sense doors. So in Buddhism, the five sense doors, seeing, seeing hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and then the mind is the sixth door. And so six-limbed equanimity is whatever arises at any of those doors, there's equanimity about that. So it's a very strong and powerful form of equanimity. I'll mention it again a bit later. And it's a deep um, meditative state in the progress of insight particularly. Uh, It's the 11th stage there on on your list. So I was thinking about this six-limbed equanimity and the three three practices, the triangle, the triad, and it just got me thinking about what I'm now making up as a new list, three-limbed equanimity, another list, Um, but I saw them all representing different facets of equanimity, and a way of putting, and I'm going to redo this um, sheet that I just made right before the retreat to more reflect this, because I just I just reflected on this the other day as I was thinking about this teaching tonight. And what I based it on was the uh, classic, what are called the three baskets of the eightfold path of sila, samadhi, panya. Sila is ethical conduct, samadhi is our meditation practice, and punya is wisdom. So the eightfold path is this um, rich and expansive teaching um, of all the different aspects of um, practice and life that we develop as we're on this meditative path. It's the, the fourth noble truth is this path, the noble eightfold path that we're walking on. And it's often um, spoken of in the shorthand of sila samadhi punya. And so sila, or ethical conduct, is equanimity as a parami, so equanimity as actions, and I also include in that the eight worldly winds because it's kind of how we are in the world. And then um, samadhi, which is a meditation practice, I include in that the five faculties that uh, Kamala spoke about last night, the seven factors of awakening, jhanas, and the progress of insight. Equanimity shows up in all of those or is the result of those. And then punya or wisdom, is the five subjects for frequent recollection and understanding of karma, which is equanimity is a Brahmavihara, the classic phrase is this expression of understanding of karma and the workings of karma. So I'm gonna go into all three of those and of <coughs> showing how equanimity manifests in these three different ways. So equanimity as a foundation for sila, for our ethical conduct, our conduct in the world. Hopefully you're getting a sense from here, if you hadn't had it already, that when we have equanimity, we're not so likely to hurt or harm others, right? We're not so reactive, we're not likely to be striking out, out of anger or fear or reactivity. And I can remember, One of my big insights, and actually what really drew me into practice was on my first retreat, low those many years ago, I was 25 years old in India, um, practicing with SN Goenka, so my first retreat, one of those 10-day, very intense um, periods of uh, retreat practice. I didn't have a clue what I was doing most of the time. It was very painful, but I remember having this mind-opening thought, do you mean it's possible that I could go around in the world and not harm people through my actions? I thought that was just inevitable, that we're all just bumping up against each other and sometimes there was love and sometimes there was anger or fear and there wasn't much we could do about that. That's just who we were, who I was. And to have some sense that there was a training here that was possible that meant I didn't have to do that, that was mind-boggling for me, and that's what inspired me to, to keep practicing. It was kind of like the bright faith that Kamala spoke about last night. You know, I didn't have any sense of how that was possible, but I saw uh, Goenkaji, and he certainly manifested that, and many of the other senior students on the retreat, but the idea that I could actually change my actions and not harm was was amazing to me. So this is equanimity as a parami in how we behave in the world. And, and paramis are these beautiful qualities of heart that we develop on our path uh, towards liberation. It's said that the Buddha, as a bodhisattva, completely um, developed these to the fullest extent. And that's what enabled him to sit under the Bodhi tree on his night of awakening and say, I can do this because he had so purified his heart and mind, developing all these paramis. And when I look at that list of paramis, again, it's on your sheet, I really see the essence is kindness. It's non-harming. It's a lot about sila and ethical conduct. So it starts with sila. That's the first parami, but it includes things like Um, I'm sorry, it starts with generosity, which is also a very, you know, non-harming practice. It's a practice of support. But um, patience and truthfulness and loving kindness, as well as equanimity, are all on that list. And so when we develop equanimity, people can really trust us. They don't have to be afraid of us. Afraid that we'll strike out irrationally or unpredictably. Um, that will be a source of fear for other people or for ourselves. We can start to trust ourselves. And we can start to trust that we'll have a wise response to our inner experience and our outer experience because the mind in its balance has wisdom. And I'll talk about that a little more uh, in that category. And so... It really is this expression that we bring into the world that offers this sense of safety, of lack of fear of trust. Oh, I know that person; they're reliable you know i I understand them i i can I can feel their heart because they're available because of this expression of equanimity and then I include in this section the eight worldly winds or vicissitudes or concerns. Again, we've touched on these just saying how that's understanding them is the expression of equanimity that will always be subject to praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Always cycling through. The Buddha experienced these. People blamed him for all kinds of things. He was criticized. He he had pain in the body, he certainly had pleasure, you know, things that were joyful for him but his mind was not caught in these changes. But they still happened. They still happened in the external sense. And so as we start to consider these in our lives and how, you know, how much time we spent chasing the positive ones and, are, and pushing away or being identified and judgmental, critical about the negative ones, when we're not so caught in them, the mind can rest. It's not so lost in what society tells us. This is the most important thing. I mean, fame has gotten kind of ridiculous these days, hasn't it? And people would do anything to get a YouTube video that, you know, gets a million views or whatever. I mean, even extreme things, dangerous things, harmful things hurtful things to themselves and others, just to get that moment of fame. It's, it's quite sad what's happening in our culture about that. But when our mind is resting and not so entangled in that, we can actually be more available for others, more empathetic, more caring, because we're not having this constant evaluation, liking, not liking, uh, you know, pra- praising or blaming. Am I getting what I want or not? So it really helps us um, rest more, be more present for others. And we see just this impermanent cyclical nature. I mean, they're always coming and going, right? Even here on the retreat, in your own inner dialogue, how many winds have passed through of these pairs? And also see how relative they are. You can do an action, say something, and someone will say, I'm so glad you said that. That was so helpful or so strong of you. And the next person, how could you have said that? That was so you know, damaging or hurtful. Same thing, same thing. We're not in control And we we tend to take them as kind of absolutes, that that how we're viewing them is how the world views them or others view them, and they're not. I, I, I found this quote. I actually don't know where I got it from, but it says, absence of pain is pleasure when you're old. Absence of pleasure is pain when you're young. Isn't that true? Wherever you are on that so it's changeable right they're all relative it's not like oh this is good and this is bad we see these winds moving through and so instead of chasing after the positive ones getting um, being miserable or rejecting or identified with the difficult ones it actually becomes a practice more of what increases true happiness and well-being not these not frittering, that's not the right word, but flittering. You know, they, they're just so evanescent. They're just coming and going. And not so reliant on the world, our projection of the world's view of us. And certainly not so reliant on accumulation, gain and loss of, of material possessions or money. And then we start to, to question or, or refine what's really important for us as we live our lives, how do we navigate this? We start to trust this intuitive wisdom, intuitive awareness of what's really helpful for our well-being. Because we see how much if we're attached here, it just increases greed and aversion, clinging and craving, and judging and self-criticism and difficulty. Ajahn Chah, that great Thai forest meditation master talked about these a lot, and he said, as far as he's concerned, the eight worldly wins are of equal value. True success is when we're aware of them operating. That's actually the positive, the real positive expression of us being in the world, not going up and down with these um, different pairs. And he says that's success. I would say that's equanimity. When we're really, we see them, we recognize that they, have, they play out in the world, but we're not so caught, not so engaged. So this is just briefly equanimity as conduct, equanimity as a parami, equanimity as it can operate as we're in relationship, as we're in the world. So much more we could say about that, but just to sense how it serves us um, in that way and really is... Uh, Produce, produce a sila, um, this sense of ethical conduct. We're not so uh, acting out of the difficult states of mind and causing harm in the world. And then the next uh, in this basket, sila, samadhi, panya, is samadhi. And this is the medica- medical, <laughs> meditative section, um, It's our meditation practice in in the Eightfold Path. Uh, But here it's the meditative expressions or experiences of equanimity. And the simplest definition of that is just a balanced, spacious mind that's connected to the present moment, knows what's happening. Any moment of true or clear mindfulness has equanimity in it. I spoke about samasati the other night, right or wise mindfulness that brings with it all these other wholesome qualities, is part of the Eightfold Path that's in this samadhi section. This is what is being pointed to here. And so it's when we're not so lost, identified, caught in the push and pull of the hindrances or our preferences, the torments of mind, the kalesas, we're seeing more clearly Equanimity is present in that moment. Sylvia Borstein, a great, great teacher here, good friend and colleague. This is, uh, she has a definition of mindfulness, and this is from her book, It's Easier Than You Think. She always has good titles for her book. It's easier than you think. She says, mindfulness is the aware, balanced acceptance of the present exper- of present experience. It isn't more complicated than that. It is opening to or receiving the present moment pleasant or unpleasant just as it is without either clinging to it or rejecting to it rejecting it and then joseph goldstein says mindfulness brings the quality of poise equilibrium and balance to the mind keeping it sharply focused with the attitude of sitting back and watching the passing show So these are all qualities or states of being, states of mindfulness you might be familiar with from your practice and you know that. We're we're just attending with this non-judgmental awareness. I've often used the phrase kind, interested, relaxed attention. When that's functioning, that's equanimity. Equanimity is part of that, the mental factors that are operating there. And so very necessary. In our practice, that we can hold whatever comes and bring that sense of interest. I spoke uh, the other day about rain, you know, recognition, acceptance, interest, non identification. That also brings equanimity about our experience through the mindfulness, through this close paying attention and seeing the true nature of our experience. I include in this section, the meditative section, of the expressions of equanimity, the five spiritual faculties that Kamala spoke about last night with, of course, mindfulness again being that lead horse in those pairs. But they all get cultivated and then as they ripen, they prepare the mind for insight. The mind that has these faculties in balance and then when they become powers is really ripe for insight, is able to reveal the true nature of things. And similarly, um, the seven factors of awakening prepare the mind in the same way. Uh, and often equanimity in for the seven uh, five spiritual faculties, equanimity is the result of these factors coming into balance. For the seven factors of awakening, it's the last on the list of seven, which begins with mindfulness and then has the three arousing factors of investigation, energy, and joy, and then the three calming factors of calm or tranquility, concentration, and then equanimity. There is a bit of a linear nature to that list. They do kind of rest on and come out of the others, though it's not strict. We, you know, we need to have them in balance, which means they're all present, so it's not linear in that way. But equanimity is lost for a reason, and it's, c- it's seen as coming out of a concentrated mind, out of samadhi, because that what, that's what allows the mind to truly deepen and open. And again, many of you have heard whole talks on the seven factors and how, again, there are something we can keep an eye on in our practice. Do so we need more calm? If we're dozy or dull or not, not uh, connecting, then we need more of the energizing factors. If we're falling asleep or feeling boredom, we need more... No, sorry, restless. Sorry, I got that wrong, didn't I? Um, if, we're, if, if there's not enough... Um, if we're too restless, if there's not enough steadiness, then we need the calming factors. So again, we, we keep an eye on these with equanimity being the result, really, of these factors coming in balance. And then sort of considered this springboard then. The mind is ripe again for a deep and transformative insight. And so they're more um, insight practices, what we do in vipassana, um, where we really uh, there's a lot of energy and investigation in these different lists, and we're really inquiring into the nature of reality, seeing the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. But equanimity also has a role in samadhi practice, in concentration practice, and again, it's on your list as as the last of the jhana factors is ekagata. And it means one-pointedness, but it's where, again, the mind comes into this simplicity and clarity of connection to experience, and its flavor is equanimity. It's a sort of synonym for equanimity. The mind isn't pushed or pulled in this ikagata. And then in the four jhanas, which are deep states of absorption that develop out of um, steady and consistent practice, especially Samatha practice, which are practices where we take simple objects like the breath or the brahmaviharas, viharas particularly Metta, can lead to these deep states of absorption. And the fourth of these, uh, these are the, called the rupa-jhanas or the material jhanas, so the highest one of these, is uh, its flavor is equanimity. It's a deep state of absorption where the mind is totally calm, cooled out, still and steady. The other jhana jhana experiences have energy to them. Um, You know, there's a lot of brightness there, especially um, piti and sukha, uh, joy and, and happiness, flavor them, but they drop away. And the mind in this fourth jhana, yeah, just has this coolness to it, this steadiness. And again, considered a place from which deep insight and investigation can come. And then I should have done this in a a different order because um, the next list... It's last on your sheet is the progressive insight which is a, a description of what often unfolds for people in deep meditative uh, vipassana practice. If we do this practice of continuous mindfulness and n- connecting to the present moment over and over again, seeing deeply into the nature of reality, these different unfoldings happen, not necessarily all, you know, strictly in order, but there's some tendency for this unfolding to happen for people, especially on long retreats. Um, And so there's a whole early section where we're really seeing deeply into impermanence and the nature of reality. And we go through a a lot of challenges in practice. But finally, the mind rests in equanimity. And this is the six-limbed equanimity that I mentioned earlier, Sankara Upeka. Equanimity about um, formations anything that arises in the sixth sense doors. The mind is just so still that things that previously caused um, pain or pleasure that we lean towards or against, the mind is totally neutral about. There's just this deep and profound neutrality towards all experience. And this again is considered the doorway that has the potential there for the mind to ripen into awakening, into freedom. So a very profound, again, state of equanimity out of more wisdom rather than concentration, out of clear seeing and alignment with the truth, with reality. And then lastly, wisdom, panya, sila samadhi panya, equanimity as an expression of wisdom, as a, as a response to truly understanding how things are in the world, the nature, the dhamma, dhammas. And so I include in this the five subjects for frequent recollection. Equanimity isn't on that list, but the more we understand these themes or subjects, the more we let them resonate, the more we accept them. That is what leads the mind and heart to deep equanimity. So again, they're on your list, but these are chanted daily in monasteries all over the world because the Buddha said to, five subjects for frequent recollection. He said, remind yourself, these are the truths. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is beloved and pleasing to me, of that, from that I will be separated. And I am the heir to my karma, heir to my actions, owner of my actions. Whatever actions I do for good or ill, of that I will be the heir. You might recognize that phrase as the, uh, equanim- the traditional equanimity phrase, Brahmavihara phrase. So perhaps if you're not familiar with those, hearing those and, and thinking of reflecting on those frequently, it might sound a little grim or morbid to just keep reminding yourself, you know, this is true. This body, old age, sickness and death, coming down the pike. These first three were that are called the heavenly messengers that spurred the Buddha on his path to awakening. He saw that they were true for him. He'd been protected, shielded from these truths. Didn't realize him. He was a young man full of health and vitality. And he said, when I realized this was true to me, I lost the vanity of youth. I lost the vanity of health. I lost the vanity of life. I mean, we take it for granted, right? I'll wake up tomorrow morning. We don't even think about it. But we don't know. We truly don't know. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing. From that I will be separated. There's a real power to these kinds of reflections. It's why it's very traditional in Buddhist practice. There's actually a lightness or a freedom that comes because we're not resisting, even unconsciously, these deep and profound truths. Everyone I know will die. I will die. And, you know, who knows how or when? I just know that's a truth. And so the equanimity is what can be taken away when everything is already let go of, when we've let go of this this vanity, this vanity. And so when old age, illness, death come, doesn't mean there won't be suffering and doesn't mean we won't have pain or angst about that, but we won't. It won't be a surprise, hopefully. And we won't have the delusion that something's wrong here. This shouldn't be happening. It's the nature of this body. I'm always amazed they function as well as they do, right? All of the ways the body and the mind can go wrong. And I know many of you are struggling with serious illness and challenge. Yet here we are able to practice. We don't know what will happen. There's this famous teaching you, many of you may have heard from, again from Ajahn Chah, about the glass. Oh, I can have a nice glass instead of a plastic one. You say, don't break my glass. Can you prevent something that's breakable from breaking? If it doesn't break now, it'll break later on. If you don't break it, someone else will. If someone else doesn't break it, one of the chickens will. Monasteries always have chickens and dogs. around. The Buddha says to accept this. He penetrated the truth of these things, seeing that this glass is already broken. Whenever you use this glass, you should reflect that it's already broken. Do you understand this? The Buddha's understanding was like this. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. He saw its impermanence, its nature. Whenever its time is up, it will break. Develop this kind of understanding. Use this glass, look after it, until when one day it slips out of your hand and smash. No problem. Why is there no problem? Because you saw its brokenness before it broke. That's equanimity penetrating it would be funny if I broke it putting it back (laughs) penetrating the truth of things so these are the subjects for frequent recollection as the mind steadies with that deep equanimity alignment with the truth can, can happen there's a great book on this by Larry Rosenberg on these five subjects called Living in the Light of Death he's a great teacher and writer I highly recommend it And so our practice is, can we turn to this? Again, not in a grim or morbid way, but actually to be more fully alive because we're not pretending. Something's not true. These are true. And then the last one of these reflections, I am the owner of my karma or my actions, is the same as the Brahma Vihara reflection, the traditional phrase that we've spoken about. And this is the understanding of karma, the law of cause and effect, of the conditioned nature of reality. This can be the most challenging challenging, um, expression of equanimity. The others I think we can get. You know, we can get a sense of them, a taste of them. We know them somewhat for ourselves or perhaps quite deeply for ourselves. But understanding karma is one of the most challenging of the Buddha's teachings. And this word uh, in, in Sanskrit, it's karma with an R. In Pali, it's kamma with a double M. Um, so I might say both, kamma is the Pali. And so, as these teachings came to the West, you might have heard, even though it's in a, a Beatles song, isn't it instant karma's gonna get you? And there was a sense of karma as this punitive kind of thing of, you know, you getting your just desserts. And that is not what this teaching is about. I always, um, what the word is, contract a little when I hear people use it that way. Oh, you got this disease or this illness or this injury because you needed to learn something. Or this needed to, to be, you, you know, you deserve this. Or this, this is here because you needed this to teach you something. And we, it can be used to blame or judge other people and what they're going through. I call that metaphysical malpractice. This is not a wise use or understanding of karma at all. Karma in Buddhist teaching simply means action. Vipaka karma is the result of action. So there's karma and vipaka karma. What we do is uh, karma. What we receive, the fruits of that, those actions is vipaka karma. And so the equanimity phrase says all beings are the owners or the heirs of their karma or their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions and not upon my wishes. And when I teach metta retreats, we always teach the other Brahma Viharas, and we've taught mainly metta, days and days of metta. And then we get to equanimity, and it says, your happiness doesn't depend on my wishes. And the people are always like, what do you mean not upon my wishes? I've just spent 10 days wishing well, and I'm expecting results when I get home. You know, going to your dear friend and saying, did you feel that? I was sending you metta the whole time. And I hate to disappoint you, but probably not but what this phrase highlights is we don't do these practices to influence or change other people it's hard enough to change ourselves right and maybe it has some effect but I don't know there's no verifiable and you could show me all the research you want and I can show you the opposite um, about these prayer studies and things like that but what I do know is radically transforms our hearts, right? That's what it's about. And so it's not about our wishes transforming, but when our hearts transform, it changes our relationships because it changes how we relate to people. So it has an enormous impact on the world, on our relationships, and therefore on other people, but not through the wishes, not through just wishing. That is not what does it. I saw this cartoon a while ago where uh, it's got a police car and they've obviously just pulled over a driver on the freeway or something and it's a, a Los Angeles Police Department car. So it's a LAPD and the sh- a cop is there you know, with his notebook leaning into the window and obviously reading someone's rights to them and this is the caption. It says, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney, Anything you say can and will be held against you. You are a child of the universe, and whether you understand it or not, things are unfolding just as they should. (laughs) You were speeding. (laughs) Only in L.A. would that happen. So the Buddha said, don't try try to figure out the workings of karma as one of the four imponderables. He said, if you try to figure it out, it'll drive you crazy. He had a sense, he knew. But for us, not possible. Yet it's so central to the Buddha's teachings. If you read any of the texts of what he said, it's in there in in Sila, in, in our ethical conduct, in the in the teachings on, on not self, in the whole understanding of rebirth that, that is woven through the Buddhist teachings. Um, it's in very much part of this deep teaching of dependent arising or dependent origination, these twelve links that describe the movement from ignorance all the way through to suffering and then when we don't understand that we just keep going around in this cycle. And it's really, the dependent origination is the description of karma a work, the the laws of cause and effect of conditionality, how these steps all influence each other and keep this pattern happening unless something happens to break or change um, one of the links. In the time of the Buddha, karma, it was a, a, a known um, teaching or understanding, but it simply meant actions. Um, and But the Buddha radically changed that, where he said, yes, it's action, but it's intentional action. That's the difference. It's not just stuff that happens. And so, you know, if we do something intentionally, that is said to have a certain karma. If you're walking along a path and it's, late at night and you don't, it's dark and you step on an ant or something, there's no karma, you weren't doing that intentionally. And he would always talk about it as a natural law, as the way of the universe, it's not personal and it's not determined by gods, there's no one up there keeping score. It's just this very um, pattern, sequence of cause and effect, cause and effect. And even though, again, in the traditional teachings it refers to rebirth, we can see it in in one lifetime. How many selves have you been reborn into or born into on this retreat? You know, the sleepy self of a few days ago. So many of you come in and said, the first few days I was like, I wasn't even here. And then I woke up. It's like, oh, that's a very different self, a new self. All the identities we take up, we're a good meditator, or then we're a bad meditator, or we're a mother, or we're sick, or we're strong, or we're generous, or we're fearful. Each of those comes with a whole identity and patterning. If we stick to that, if we um, identify with that, then it, it becomes sticky. But if we just see, oh, it's always changing how I'm viewing myself. Kamala used this uh, teaching from the Buddha that's so important. That which the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. If we act out of anger, if we have frequent thoughts of anger, it's likely we'll experience anger and also more likely that we'll get anger back, right? When we act with anger, people react to that. If we have thoughts of kindness, act out of kindness, much more likely that we'll get kindness back. Not all the time, of course, but just much more likely. And so I like this rephrasing of the Buddha's teachings, where it says, the thought manifests as word, the word manifests as deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings just that sense of what we cultivate will become our expression in the world. So we take care and mindfulness helps us take care. Equanimity helps us take care. So this teaching on karma is not about blame or anyone deserving to suffer. Not about that at all. It's just acknowledging there are causes and conditions some of which beyond our control, that led to this current manifestation. But then we do, especially as adults, have choices and we see the results of those choices. But what we can often see is our choices come out of habits or our conditioning or our fears or our neuroses. They're not actually even conscious choices. Again, we're just acting habitually. I can remember a number of years ago feeling that in my life I was kind of being put into a lot of roles and um, situations um, and there were a lot of expectations on what I should do, what I should be doing with my life and and ways I could be serving and, and expressing myself in the world. And I felt kind of you know, when I look back, it's, well, anyway, that's just a word, it's sort of a victim of that, you know, that, that this was happening to me. And I had a lot of fear and resentment and resistance to those processes as I saw them unfolding, and a lot of self-judgment. When I really looked at what was happening, why there was resistance in the fear, the basic un- underneath it was I wasn't good enough, I couldn't do this, I wasn't qualified, I wasn't, you know, experienced enough, or whatever it, it was. It was too hard, too complicated for me. And now I had a lot of suffering around this, and it, it went on for some time where I was doing these things, and, you know, they were going okay, or, you know, doing more of this and less of that, but this feeling of not being in charge in a way, that I was just falling into these things. And then somehow, and I, I still don't know how this insight, I would call it, came up, but I had this like thunderbolt one day where the, the, the words just clearly came to me oh, this is my karma. That's why this is all happening. It's not an accident. I'm not in the wrong place doing the wrong things. Everything that I've done up till now, all the practice that I've done, the, the experiences that I've had, the ways I have served and offered service have led me to this, to this role, to these, these expressions in the world. And when I saw that, something let go of the resistance to it, of the fear around it. It's like, oh, this is my karma. It's lawful. That, this should be, that I should be expressing myself this way in the world. And as I realized that, as that dropped all of the resistance, not all, it's a habit of mind that I'm very familiar with, but the, the stronger, the sort of real big conceptual resistance dropped, I was actually able to step more fully into the roles and into these experiences, into leadership. And it, I had to stop the story of I can't do this because I had to look and see I was. And people were responding and, and, and um, relating to me in that way. I had to let go of the story of myself as not good enough, as, as deficient. And understanding karma in that way really helped me be more in the world, be more engaged and more active, so it wasn't fatalistic, it wasn't, dep- um, you know, dropping into, into apathy when I was doing equanimity this morning as a practice for the difficult person, the phrase that came up to, for me is, because it wasn't, you know, I have to work with this person. I just thought, oh, this is our shared karma here. It's like, this is the way things are. If I'm gonna say, oh, this is really difficult, it's always complicated, and I don't like how they have to do that. And, uh, this is our shared karma. This is how it is, and it's something dropped away a little. So these teachings are actually, when we truly understand them, they're empowering, not fatalistic. It's not, oh, you know, I deserve this, or it's my fault, or nothing to do. It actually helps us understand what's happening. I like how Tanasaro Bhikkhu, he's a, um, a monk and a scholar, monastery down near San Diego says, instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of kama focused on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing with every moment. Who you are, what you come from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. Even though the past may account for many of the inequalities we see in life, our measure as human beings is not the hand we've been dealt, for that hand can change at any moment, We take our measure by how well we play the hand we've got. If you're suffering, you try not to continue the unskillful mental habits that would keep that particular karmic feedback going. If you see that other people are suffering and you're in a position to help, you focus not on their karmic past, but your karmic opportunity in the present to help. Someday you may find yourself in in the same predicament that they're in now. So here's your opportunity to act in the way you'd like them to act towards you when that day comes. The golden rule, basically, do unto others as you would like them to do to you. So it's not fatalistic. It really is what we do. And uh, as the Buddha said again and again, our intentions are key, these intentional choices that we make to actions of body, speech, and mind. But intention isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card, because often we can have good or mainly good intentions and still cause harm, right? Can say or do something, and for whatever reason, especially if there's a cultural misunderstanding around it, differences of experience, we say something and it causes harm then there's impact and we have to acknowledge that. The intention comes back into play in how we hold and respond to the feedback about the impact that we've had. We'll all make mistakes in, in our lives. We're imperfect, but this can come particular, it will be particularly heightened as we move or work or practice or play in more diverse communities where there's racial diversity, cultural diversity, economic diversity, any kind of diversity about sex, sexuality, sexual preference, sexual orientation, sexual expression. As we um, connect with and, and work with whatever people who have different experiences, we will often say or do things that cause harm, even though that wasn't our intention. So we have to acknowledge that and acknowledge that most of the time we actually have mixed intentions, right? You know, we're not perfect human beings, we're definitely imperfect, but we try to hone or or encourage the best of those intentions, the wholesome intentions, but again, we will cause harm and how we respond to that is how this karmic wheel keeps unfolding we need a lot of sensitivity and compassion certainly for the other if we've we have caused harm if there's been impact but also uh, for ourselves and just the humility to recognize that we don't always know what's right what's what's appropriate or what's the best way what the right experience is. We have our own unique set of conditioning and experiences. And to have the humility um, to see that, uh, it's been a huge learning for me um, as Spirit Rock has made efforts towards diversity, more inclusivity, being more welcoming, just to see the barriers of what we call institutional racism can present. I mean, literally our location is a barrier to people being able to feel that Spirit Rock is accessible, just as that. But the way we do things, you know, the fact that so many people who come and work here tend to be white or middle class or whatever, that creates barriers. And so our awareness to that, uh, there has to be humility and understanding about that and the willingness to change, to do what we need to do to make this a more diverse and vibrant and healthy and representative community. And the other important thing that uh, the Buddha said about karma is not everything we experience is a result of karma. You know, it's a lot about our intentions and our actions. But things like the weather or accidents or illnesses, they're not necessarily the result of karma. There's other forces at work here. As he said, it's a, a law of the universe, but working with these other forces. But again, as I said before, so complex not for us to figure out oh I got this disease or especially to put it on other people but I like how Gil Fronsdale um, frames karma. He says we're not to blame but we're responsible meaning we don't use it to bring up guilt or shame or blame or judge but as Tan Jeff says, Tanasarabiku, to use it to help step into the moment and see what's What's appropriate here? What's wise response here? And so that's why mindfulness is so important. The samasati that I spoke about to bring in this clarity and this clear seeing and the way it has the tendency to develop wholesome states and abandon unwholesome ones to bring um, wisdom in. And so equanimity is such an important part of what the Buddha called the middle way. I mean, the essence of his teaching is the middle way, this balance, not between extremes. Kamala often uses the phrase, resting the mind before it falls into extremes. This is equanimity. So what I'm wanting to convey tonight what I hope you get is just the many facets of equanimity, the many flavors of equanimity, and that it um, can show up how we are in the world through our ethical conduct as a parami, in our meditation practice, but most importantly in our dharma wisdom. I think that's the the most transformative. Um, And that equanimity actually is a natural state of mind. It's what what's there when we don't add anything. I often use this example. If this water had some dirt or something in it and I kept shaking it up, stirring it, it would be cloudy, murky, unpalatable, undrinkable. But if I left that cloudy water just sit and settle, eventually it would clear, right? Things would settle to the bottom and the water would become more clear. That's very true of... The nature of mind. We might think that reactivity or the chattering mind or the commentating mind is the default. That's what my mind is like. But meditation shows us that's not true. You're all here because you've touched those moments of silence or stillness and then seen what happens when the mind moves, when something gets added, some wanting or not wanting some reactivity, some judging or fixing or comparing, we start to see, oh, that's extra. That's not who we true, truly are. And this is what we explore on retreat, this possibility. And as I said, this deepening state of calm and equanimity is the springboard for, for insight and for awakening. Once we truly know this for ourselves, that this is the natural state of mind, this purity or this equanimity or this balance, it changes how we relate to the mind. The mind isn't then our enemy or the difficult thing that we have to struggle with or a problem, but a source of enormous potential for well-being and ultimately for freedom, for awakening. And if karma tells us that life is shaped by our choices, mindfulness and equanimity helps us make those choices more conscious. So we're an active participant in our lives. We're choosing to step into our lives, not the helpless victims of experience. i just finish with the words of Ajahn Chah again. He says, in truth, there's nothing really wrong with the mind. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrows. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful Really peaceful. Just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If the wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Six-legged equanimity, six-limbed equanimity. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. To make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Let's let the words settle into silence. Again, thank you for your attention. As I said, there was a lot in this talk. Let it settle, find that stillness. That's the most important thing. The words are just the finger pointing to the moon, as they say. The most important thing is your own sense of equanimity. So it's about a half hour now for, for walking meditation or standing out in the cool night air, just listening to the frogs and then perhaps joining us for the last sit with chanting. <clears throat> and sometimes we get into patterns on retreat where I go to bed after the Dharma talk, or I go just do this. Energy changes, and part of our practice is to stay in tune with. What, what does it feel right like for tonight? So maybe tonight, if you haven't yet, you can come join us for the chanting. Thank you.